0: Ecological, physical level with an intact living ecosystem is not a nice thing to have. It's not optional. It's actually required for mental health and physical well-being.
1: Let's take a flyer into a future where most systems are managed by artificial intelligence. AI would run everything from financial systems to production and shipping of consumer goods, even providing maybe virtual relationships. What if a powerful AI system starts putting new signals into nature, a kind of artificial biosemiotics? Is anybody looking into that possibility?
0: Yeah, and I mean, we've, we've already seen this with the uh, rise of air pollution and light pollution. Light pollution, I can briefly talk about, a lot of our nighttime uh, cityscapes have light on the blue end of the spectrum. And what that does is it uh, hurts <laughs> animals and plants and trees, and so they can't really sleep. Just like us, blue light wakes us and plants up whereas red light, light that's uh, warmer on the uh, spectrum, helps put us to sleep. And so we have already been, without the help or need of artificial intelligence even, um, we have already been artificially uh, hacking into the systems of our ecologies. But I would say that the effects have been harmful, not just for uh, trees and all the other organisms that rely on darkness or um, on being free from this light pollution, but also uh, on ourselves. And there are thousands of studies detailing, chronicling the harms from this. My takeaway with AI and with our own knowledge of how ecosystems work, is that even the most advanced knowledge is always articulating an N minus one system. We were created by a system, we we emerged from a system which we we did not create, which means that we can never fully understand the system. So the moment we try to have a artificial habitat, we wind up with, you know, biosphere, right? Biosphere 2, these famous experiments that are famous because they failed, uh, that they were not able to reproduce a uh, healthy, uh, living, artificial biosphere because they didn't know how to do it. They didn't have all the components. Even with all the king's horses and all the king's men, they could not put Humpty together again.
1: We have been talking with Yogi Hendlin, a California environmental philosopher and public health scientist transplanted to Erasmus University in Rotterdam you can find links to follow up on this discussion in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Yogi, you've brightened my day with some truth-telling. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. That's it for this show. Check out all our past programs free at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening, and let's meet up again next week.
2: This is Norma Sylvester, the Boogie Cat. You're listening to
0: KBOO, Portland, 90.7
3: FM, Community Radio.
4: Another politician sitting far away.
1: This is the battleground. Hi, I'm Jeff Rosenberg. Tune in to the Song Circle every Friday afternoon at 1.30 p.m.
4: Turn their backs on the grisly scenes. Trace to the privileged suns.
1: And your death will come soon. You never know what you'll hear next.
0: Tune in to KABU's Multilingual Music Marathon on March 16th. Join us in paying homage to our planet's linguistic diversity through song and dance. We'll be showcasing music from around the world from 12 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. Again, that's KBU's Multilingual Music Marathon, this Thursday, March 16th, starting at noon. You can hear all our other specials from this winter campaign by going to kboo.fm slash thrills.
4: Welcome
3: to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 97 FM. I'm your host this week, Avi Marr. Before we start our interview with Deshawn Charles Winslow, just a reminder that this is KBU's all thrills, no frills, special winter drive programming. Help us reach our goal of $17,000 before March 25th. You can go to kabu.fm slash give or text KABU to 44321. And thank you. Our guest today is novelist Deshawn Charles Winslow. His debut novel, In West Hills, was awarded a Center for Fiction First Novel Award, an American Book Award, a Willie Moss Award for Southern Fiction, a Los Angeles Times Book Award, Lambda Literary Award, and was a Publishing Triangle Award finalist. His second novel, Decent People, has been lauded by the Los Angeles Times as a murder mystery that doubles as a savvy examination of race and class. Decent People practically turns its
2: own pages.
3: Welcome to Between the Covers, to Sean Charles Winslow.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Um, how did decent people take shape as a as a second book after the publication of In West Mills?
2: Well, it started out as a book about three people who drowned accidentally. Um, I learned a few years ago. I learned that in the real town of South Mills, North Carolina. Uh, there was an accidental drowning of three elderly women who carpooled to church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned about this, it was really fascinating because I had never heard my family talk about it at all. And so I started to do a lot of research, but I never did because I decided that I I was probably going to change the identities of the characters anyway. And so I just, I left myself with this, Accidental drowning, and I said I'm going to build a world around it, you know. And I also was interested in bringing back Eunice Breezy and Leroy, and so I, you know, had to figure out a way to to make all of that work. And so the book was not originally going to be a murder mystery at all. Uh, When I started to write, I realized that I was I was bored with it, and I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't get into it. I was not excited about any of the characters and but when I decided to change it to a murder mystery that's when things really got going (laughs) for me and I started I started writing almost every day but it was it was rough in the beginning because I had a very very broad idea and I just it didn't have an engine behind it but changing the three accidental deaths to a murder that got that got me going.
3: It's Breezy Eunice and Leroy. How were they yeah. the three that stayed with you after in West Mills what was the, what was your thinking after
2: I think a lot of it is because Leroy's experience was similar to my own um upbringing very very different like my parents never tried to have me converted or anything like that but, but I was a queer teen you know trying to trying to to fit in as best i could in a place where where it was you know very well known and and commonplace for queerness to be criticized, and so I knew how he, I knew how he felt, you know. Um, so that's that was part of the reason. And I, you know, if In West Mills had been longer, I may have spent more time with in that household with Eunice, Breezy, and Leroy. But um, I didn't want that. I didn't want them to take over the book. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Yeah, I'm going to come back to this to this nuclear family."
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh Yeah.
3: So one of the dimensions of your writing that many of us fans rave about is your creation of place. I spoke to another author a while back, Omar el Akkad, and he grew up in these very distinctly discrete different places across his lifetime. And he talked about how much he envies writers who are kind of so deeply of the place they grew up. Can you talk about how your North Carolina upbringing lives in you and how you see the world as you you write about it?
2: Sure. I think, so I grew up in Elizabeth City, which is also a small town. It's not as small as West Mills, but it is a small town where people sort of, at least when I was growing up, people sort of had a good idea of who had grown up there and whose family had long histories versus people who were new there because of the university or because of the Coast Guard base. So I find that wherever I live, even when I lived in New York City, I find a way in my brain to create small towns (laughs) of a neighborhood or a building, you know. And while there is like a lot of anonymity, more anonymity in a place like New York or Atlanta, There's still, you still find yourself in these uh, small communities of sorts, you know. And I think that when I write, I just kind of go back to the way I grew up, you know, Um, where everybody knows everybody, everybody's watching everyone. When you you don't think you're being watched, you are, and the smallest detail of where you were seen and at what time can can get around very casually. People aren't even intentionally doing it you know so yeah i think that's how my my upbringing and growing up i don't know if it's specific to north carolina but i think i think southern states have this thing about community that's unspoken it's just kind of happens you know yeah
3: how would you sort of describe the elements of it about how it how how community functions in the south that is so even if you come let's say to a to a apartment building in new york city that you bring that into your vision i i I love what you're getting at about what actually happens in the community without it ever being um outwardly named
2: so i think something more tangible that happens is ideas and ideals get shared you know and and people. People sort of jump on bandwagons that they don't necessarily agree with, but they do it to to keep the peace. You know. So, for example, homophobia in a small in a small community. I don't think that some of the people who pretend to be homophobic really are, but I think they they want to keep their own standing in the community. They want to maintain their job and their prestige reputations, and so if the majority says homosexuality is wrong, they're gonna say the same thing, you know, and just all, all sorts of social social issues. I think that small communities, and especially in the South where they're being heavily Christian, I think people sort of take on beliefs that they don't necessarily share just to get on and and, and be okay. Yeah.
3: Well, in thinking about decent people, uh, what you reminded me of, and it might be a little bit different, was the way people signed on that Limp was guilty,
4: mm-hmm.
3: right? And exactly. I think like what you're saying about there's a possibility they didn't even believe that, but that was right. what the community was sort of, right? Sort
4: exactly.
2: Of
3: along with this is our narrative now about that crime mm-hmm. that makes us feel better is Limp did it.
2: Exactly, because it's easy, you know, it's really easy and they have what they think is enough evidence to to be able to feel okay with accusing him. Oh yeah, he said lots of awful things about his siblings. Let's wash her, let's put it on him so we can move forward. <laughs> you know, they're almost doing the same thing the police are doing, the conclusions the police draw about the Harmon's. you know. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: sort of take an easy stereotype around drugs and and then they
2: don't have to work anymore exactly yeah the community the community members are so similar they don't want to do the hard work of saying well if he was a murderer he would have done it years ago why why now versus you know they don't want to do that work they just want to they want to get along with everyone so they just adopt whatever the the the, the standard argument or belief is
3: I see. So that's the kind of setup of the book is Joe pushing against that. That's that's her arc is, uh, is, is going against the community's um, easy answer.
4: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Okay. Secrets and how they affect the people who hold them and who they're hidden from. Seems to me one of the fabulous themes you do in both books. Do you know what the secrets your characters are carrying while you're writing them? Or do you discover them while you
2: moving through the story some of them I come up with in the in the beginning so with Eunice for example I knew right away that she was going to try to get Leroy fixed and that she wouldn't want people to know that she had tried to get him fixed because it was an acknowledgement of the problem you know Um, a public acknowledgement and, you know, and that she was going outside where most people would have said, this is a thing we pray about, you know, or this is a thing we go to a pastor for. She's, she's going outside of the normal secret channels, you know. So that's Eunice. Yes, I knew. The other ones I had to sort of come up with, I came up with their secrets as I went along. Savannah's secret was not going to have anything to do with drugs and I don't believe then Ted Secret was not something that I I knew from the outset. Yeah. So I would say it's, you know, it's about a 30, 70, 30 split <laughs> <laughs> on what I knew ahead of time and what comes up comes up later. And I I'm okay with that. I like not knowing the whole story in the beginning, just enough to get me to get me going. Yeah.
3: Mm. <laughs> How did you
2: choose your title? Actually, I didn't, for decent people, I didn't choose the title. Originally, it was gonna be called Pharaoh's Army. And that was based on a scene in which I had left discussing the Harmons with his own mother. And, I, and And she referred to them as Pharaoh's Army. And so I ended up changing that scene completely and cutting that conversation and so that title didn't work anymore. But I still wanted to, I still wanted to capture um, a group of people who are like not so nice, kind of doing the bidding of patriarchy, you know. And so I pitched some titles that were similar to decent people, but they were they were clunky, you know. And so my editor sort of boiled them down and came up with came up with decent people. But and I loved it. I, it was so perfect. <laughs>
3: Oh, I agree completely because I think it's one of the things that's so beautiful about your work is that you hold on to the humanity of these, of people who do things that just destroy other people. But Mm -hmm. but you keep keep their good intentions inside their horrible decisions. In fact, I think it's one of the things I love most about why your characters are so rich and like like not in in West Mills I was like she is the center of this thing and boy oh boy it's stacked up yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah. that's one of the things I wanted to definitely do with decent people I wanted I wanted all of the characters to have a at least a little bit of likability you know um, because they believe that what they're doing is to save someone, you know, in many, in many cases, it's, you know, most of their motivations come from patriarchy that they don't really realize that's going on. But, but they are, they are trying to save someone else in most, in most cases, maybe not Ted so much. But, but he's not out to harm anyone just for the fun of it. <laughs> you know, it all, it all comes back to trying to do something for the greater good or, you know, <laughs> they believe so.
3: But I love what you were saying that they think there's something heroic. They're, they think there's yeah. saving in play here and that that's right. their role. And you can expose the, whoops. <laughs> The reader can't experience them as two dimensional the way that you do it.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad that that came comes across.
3: <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think many many would agree. You're listening to Between the Covers on KBOO, Portland, ninety point seven FM. Before we get back to our interview with novelist Deshaun Charles Winslow, I want to remind you about our upcoming special programming for the KBOO Winter Drive you can find the complete list at our website. And now is a great time to become a member of KBOO. Show your support for Between the Covers and for KBOO by becoming a member today. Just go to kbu.fm give. Help us meet our $17,000 all thrills, no frills campaign goal. We're community funded, so we need your support to get there. Just go to kbu.fm give or text KBOO to 44321, thank you. So I know you were saying before we started the interview that the 70s picked itself by the logistics from in West Mills, but, (laughs) but it was one of the things that was striking to me of the elements of the place is class and race in the 70s in a small North Carolina town was what you were trying to illustrate. What kind of questions did you sit with, with those set of parameters about how this would play
2: out? Well, part of it was aside from the, those logistical parameters that I had, I was also curious about what America in general was like after the civil rights movement and with black Panthers movement, you know, starting up and, And I, you know, I grew up in a town where race, you know, race wasn't discussed on large, on a large level. You know, I, you know, I definitely heard, you know, topics of race relations in the home, not very frequently at all. It was mostly around particular events going on in the world and definitely around election time and that sort of thing. But I I was kind of curious, what what was a small town like in the 70s after civil rights, Black Panther, you know, that movement, had things change, would things change in a small town the way they might in a big city, you know, New York, LA, Chicago? And I just sort of found that they didn't, they wouldn't change that much, at least not where I was from, because there was no one doing marches. There was no one holding rallies in this, in these little teeny towns, at least not where I'm from, you know? And so I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna write these characters and these predicaments to reflect that even though it's 1976, things are very, very much like the 50s and the 60s still you know yeah
3: and one of the ways I love that you brought that in was was Marion trying to open her practice on the other side of town
4: mm-hmm. right.
3: and, and the the way it was absolutely rejected wasn't it
4: that yeah
3: was a great way to say exactly what you're talking about like no nothing's changed we know what doing, changed. But, but no landlord's going to let you think you get to work where you want
2: Mhm. Yeah. She had been in the north too long yeah. as they say. <laughs> yeah, and she thought that she she thought that the progressions that were happening in the north had made their way to the south apparently, you know, but she learned the hard way. And
3: I think that's mm-hmm. a that's a really nice kind of humanizing of her as a character cuz she's a pretty tough character. Yes. Is is her presumption of her own human rights and how that got no respect at all.
2: hmm Exactly. Yeah, she was quickly put back in her place mm-hmm. by moving that to the South, back to the South. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Would, do, do you feel like reading a little bit?
2: Sure. Sure. I will read... I- have a spot that i've picked as my reading spot (laughs) and it is the opening of chapter four and it's when joe goes to uh visit angela glasper when joe arrived in front of angela glasper's house two men were sitting on the steps they were both drinking coffee from styrofoam cups and smoking cigarettes a small cordless radio sat between them, gospel music coming from its one speaker. A pack of four or five healthy-looking mutts emerged from the from under the porch, tails wagging. A welcoming committee, it seemed. Not a single one of them barked. They sniffed at her ankles. Their cold nos- noses caused Joe to say, "Okay, now that's enough. Get." and then they turned their attentions to one another. The men looked to be around Joe's age, but she didn't recognize them. That was for the best. Now wasn't the time for a schoolhouse reunion. Besides, what if they were part of the crew who believed Limp, limp would commit fatricide? If you come for James Rose, she said it's gonna be another 15, 20 minutes or so, the slender, gray afro man said and we both buyin' six. Joe had forgotten that Angela's mother was a baker. Angela had mentioned it long ago when Nate had first introduced them. But Joe hadn't realized that Angela's mother made the baked goods right there in their house. She had assumed the woman did the baking somewhere else. I'm here to see Angela, Joe said to the men. She's in there, gone up and knock, the heavyset Baldwin suggested his cigarettes his cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth. Evidently, Angela had heard Joe and the men talking. She appeared at the door, wearing jeans, a t-shirt and a beige bathrobe. By the looks of it, she had been napping with her hand between her right cheek and the pillow. Her shiny hair was pushed back into a loose ponytail. It looked as though she'd recently had a relaxer. Hey, Miss Joe, she said, opening the door and inviting Joe in. I like your suit. The blues pants suit was the least was the least wrinkled getup in Joe's closet. She hoped the sneakers she would thrown on toned things down some. Yes, Joe had every intention to ask prying questions, but she didn't want to look like she'd come to ask prying questions. After taking a seat, Joe thanked Angela again for allowing her to stop by on such short notice. The mouth watering aroma of baked goods filled the room. She might have come at the right time to buy some of the rolls for Limp. She knew he was a fan. No problem, Angela said. Well, as you probably figured, I'm out of work now. It's not like I have much else to do. Angela mo- Angela's mother, Jane, came into the room and introduced herself, though they had briefly met once before at Manning Grocery. Or maybe it was the flea market. Joe couldn't remember. Jane had a large afro picked out to near perfection. And like Angela, Jane couldn't possibly weigh more than 100, 110 pounds, Joe mused. Perhaps she was one of those bakers who never ate the product. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah.
3: So when you were growing up in north carolina did you always want
2: to write no i had no clue that i would be a writer i didn't even i didn't even read for pleasure until i was in my early 20s <laughs> yeah i didn't grow up in a bookish in a bookish home at all it was a professor when i went to undergrad the, the first time who sort of turned me on to to reading. And that, that was in 1999, I believe. And um, I did not think of writing until, well, I think the idea may have very lightly crossed my mind in 1999 when I started reading Toni Morrison and started to feel like a lot of her characters reminded me of people that i grew up knowing you know and so part of me there was just a little something that said oh you you know you could try to you know these types of characters you could try to write your own book or story but i it wasn't serious it was just a passing thought i didn't become interested in writing until 2008 when my father died unexpectedly and I started to, as a part of the grieving process, I started to write about him in the form of nonfiction. And I sort of just basically switched to fiction. And as the grieving subsided, I stopped writing about him at all. <laughs> you know, other people and and stuff from my past became more, intro- people from my past became more interesting to explore. So that's, that's how I got into writing. It was sort of, caught it caught me by surprise as well
3: you started writing as a kind of a spontaneous way to think about your dad
2: yeah uh
4: uh-huh.
2: yeah I so I grew up with my father in the home he raised you know my parents raised me um, and there was a brief period where he raised me alone about a year and a half, maybe two years, My parents separated and I lived with him. And then they got back together. But I did there was a lot I didn't know about my father because he was, you know, he was already 40 when I was born. He had had pre- two previous wives. He had six children before me. and he had a, a past with with crime. And when he was younger, and I didn't know the details about those things. I just knew sort of the bullet points, you know. And and I just kind of knew not to ever ask him. And then when he passed, I wanted to know everything, <laughs> you know. And I had to and there was really no one to ask, to be honest. There was no one left to ask um because my older siblings were kids when he was really living it up, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, so they didn't have exact answers either, you know? Um, And so I just was trying to piece things together. It was just gonna be a a essay, you know, a long essay about my father, sort of, you know, biographical and chronological to the best of my knowledge I did have. And then I started to fictionalize it and then I said, well, maybe the whole thing should just be like a short story, you know, instead. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it was, that's what, that's what I was doing. And I ended up writing a very short, a very short piece. Uh, it wasn't even quite 10 pages, you know. And that's when I sort of abandoned it all altogether. yeah.
3: It's very interesting that in some ways it ties in with your themes of there being the secret that is an open secret, but the agreement mm-hmm. to keep the love going and the harmony going. If I if that if that's correct, is you yeah. don't, you don't say what we all know.
2: Exactly, we all know it, but we don't need to talk about it.
3: <laughs> and that and that it isn't until the person passes. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. it, when Essie passes away, right? I, mm-hmm. It's when the person passes that there's permission for what you always knew to be true to be yeah. real
4: true
2: absolutely because that's such right.
3: a, that's the, what you do so beautifully in fiction
4: to maneuver <laughs>
3: that material about when people care about each other what they hide as a way of expressing what they their care for the person
2: mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. such a
3: fascinating thing that that's how your writing started
2: yeah yeah, it is. It's amazing now that you point it out. <laughs> it is amazing.
3: <laughs> but but what I love about it is the is this is what I often find is there's a loving intention behind a choice you don't understand. it mm-hmm. sounds like that's not abstract to you. That actually right. was I lived with my dad in 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 a chapter in his life that was not in the wild chapter of his life. I lived with this man and I wanted to know about this man, but I wouldn't hurt this man by asking about it.
2: Asking him, exactly, yeah.
4: Amazing, amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah. the closest we ever came to him sharing some of of his sordid past was when I was applying to colleges and the financial aid stuff had to be filled out and they asked about your parents' highest level of education and i put down i knew that he had only graduated he only made it to the 10th grade but i put down that he was a high school graduate and he said you can put that i don't have a high school diploma i only went to the 10th grade you know but i and i, I that i knew you know he that was something he had shared but i to your point i wasn't going to bring it up <laughs> you know i was well, going mean- to let that
3: that's that's your love for him was you wanted to protect that and just in that tiny way
4: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah.
3: and that that's a moment where he he said it's okay for you to say what's true about me
4: yeah exactly yeah
3: (laughs) you're listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM if you're just joining us today, our guest is novelist Deshaun Charles Winslow. What was your early life like in the small town in North Carolina? How would you describe it?
2: You know, it was uh my early life was pretty it was pretty blissful. You know, I was in a two parent home. Both of my parents worked. I wasn't spoiled, but we but you know, we were not. We weren't, we weren't poor you know and things got a got a little rocky in the 80s when my parents started to have you know marital issues and then they had that separation um but they got back and things largely fell on fell on track fell back on track but i think when i was started to go through puberty and started to realize that i was definitely attracted to to men or boys i and I was presenting feminine, you know, more feminine than I than I probably present now. That's when things started to to get to get a little bad, you know. And it wasn't sadly, it wasn't just at school with with other kids, you know. Some I got not I got less overt commentary from family members and and neighbors and stuff. And it wasn't always, you know, like in a harmful way, but it was a correct, it was always corrective. You know, um, don't don't walk like that. You're walking like a girl. Boys are supposed to walk like this. Boys are supposed to talk like this, laugh like this and so on, you know. So somewhere between, somewhere between nine and 11, that's when those, those correctives started to come and they were very constant and yeah. And I started to definitely develop low self-esteem, and I became withdrawn. And I had a, a certain set of people that I would, in terms of my peers, there were just a handful of kids that I would would be around because they were so used to me that they didn't realize I was that much different, you know. Yeah. But my teen years were rough. My teen years were rough because everyone was starting to date. And, and be sexually active and all that stuff. And I and I wasn't for very obvious reasons, you know, because I, I was definitely queer and I wasn't going to tell anyone. Yeah. I eventually did, you know, before I graduated high school, but yeah.
3: Yeah, so you had an internal version of what you were talking about before where you were going to keep your secret for your own safety, mm-hmm. keep everything... Sort of in the small in your smaller community and bigger community, right. that you put yourself on a. I don't know what would we say that you were waiting? Were you waiting to go somewhere else?
2: Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. I was waiting. I had older cousins who had graduated and moved away for college, and so I saw that it was possible. And I said, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. I just got to wait it out, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I just got to wait it out. Mm -hmm.
3: So I may already be circling back to what we just talked about, but my next question is about this exact thing in a way. There's a betrayal Leroy's mother inflicts on him that's connected to the murder. So it gives us a little suspense, but Mm -hmm. it highlights the complexity of a mother's almost obsessive love and worry for her son, but her sort of systemic homophobic reaction to her son's sexuality those two come together and create a, a massive betrayal
4: mm-hmm.
3: towards her child. What question interested in you in in sitting into something that complex and painful?
2: Yeah, I think the question I was trying to figure out is: we know that a that a, in most cases a mother can love unconditionally, but to what degree? does the child's difference begin to affect her and where does she draw the line you know like okay i'm not you're not gonna take me down (laughs) you know you and this this difference that you have i can deal with this much of it but now it's starting to encroach on my own reputation that could affect my businesses and so on and so forth, and so I think that was the question: where, where does does unconditional parental love have? Does it have a, a a boundary? You know, is there a line that gets drawn? And um, and I feel like with Eunice, as much as she loves her son, she she does care about her reputation because she was born. From a woman who had such a bad reputation and she's trying to basically not perpetuate or yeah she's not trying to perpetuate this curse i think is how i how i think of it
3: so it's the it's competing with her fears about how she's viewed is what's happening
4: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
3: i mean if i can if it's okay with you if i can flip to in west mills i'm thinking about sure she was one of the really, and it's a different story, but there is the same profound abandonment and secrecy mm. around her child that stays in place, even yeah. when the child is standing in front of her in New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to not spoil anything, but yeah. uh, but because she wants to continue. The life that
2: she gets to have by keeping, she keeps. Right, you're talking about Essie, right? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah, she loves her son, but she's got a. By being able to pass, she there is a lot of freedom in that that she never imagined, and and she's willing to have him out of her life, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
3: The most poignant parts are when. She looks like she's almost gonna touch him and then doesn't. I mean that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you you know, you sense from his view that she looks sad, but he doesn't know anything about why. And right. So again, it seems like one of the themes that your work really looks at is when we think we're protecting somebody is when the most harm gets gets played out. Mm -hmm. I mean, to go back to what you were saying before, that sort of struck me as where do you think that being one of your recurrent themes comes from?
2: Oh, I'm pretty sure it comes from my own relationship with my mom, you know, or more so I should say the past, the past relationship we had, like that separation that my parents had, even though it was pretty brief. I think that it happening when I was eight or maybe seven I think it was um, and I grew up as an only child even though I have siblings I grew up as an only child I think that even though now as an adult I know why they separated you know and it made perfect sense and them getting back together is more of a miracle you know Um, but I think I will probably always carry carry the question in my mind of like but why did she leave me you know you know, I think that's something that will, that I'll always have, even though she has answered the question. You know, I still think that a part of me wants some other answer. <laughs> you know,
4: well,
3: I, yeah. I like what you're saying about what what, what stays with us. And, mm-hmm. and it's not the, the little old lady in her sweater explains it to grown up me. That's not exactly. our question. Our question is what's good enough for an eight year old?
4: It's exactly a
3: answer. and mm-hmm. their one is usually the answer yeah
4: yeah yep. Yeah.
3: so so that might be might help me understand how you're so you have such a great gaze at what someone thinks the question is but the question that's underneath it is driving the whole story
4: your mm-hmm.
3: like, example is really is really a good one like there is no reason a mother should leave you yeah <laughs> and there's explanations that come later but right. still you can still I still can see those questions in your fiction
4: mm-hmm. uh,
3: yeah this is the person who loves Leroy more than anybody and she right. hurts him more than anyone
2: yep exactly yeah yeah and but she doesn't she thinks that she's trying to help him
3: <laughs> well I think that yeah. that's so much of sort of the um the harm done by parents
4: mm-hmm. where
3: homophobia lives inside the house is right. you're harming the sanctity of your child yeah. and you think it's because you're worried about what the world's gonna do to them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most of the time the kid isn't, especially at that age, they're not thinking that much about the world, you know? You're the parent I think is who they most, the parent's opinion. Is who they're most concerned about at that, at that age. I think I yeah. would imagine. I'm not a parent, but I've been a kid.
4: <laughs> well, I,
3: I love the way I love the way you had Leroy go through so many different, like, get out of my room, and then he forgives her, and then you know that felt so real to me about what it must be like to be a teenager who both loves and needs and has been a coddled, adored child, mm-hmm. and really for him to understand what she put him through. Yeah. Um, how he has to separate from her. Right. What he's finding out about himself. I think that was one of the things that was so the uh, the emotional resonance of how you wrote that was one of my favorite parts of the book.
4: Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
3: So where's your fiction mind now? Is it still in West Mills? Has it has it moved to a different place or mm-hmm.
2: it has moved out of West Mills, but still small town North Carolina like uh yeah, I think that I haven't decided if I'm gonna set it just in my real life hometown of Elizabeth City or if I'll choose one of the neighboring towns that you know 20 minutes away. But I think I'm gonna go with a real a real life town. I think you know, I could change my mind, <laughs> but I think that I'm gonna put West Mills on the shelf. And But I think I am still gonna continue with with the third book. It's gonna deal with family dynamics. And I think I'll bring a neighbor in to it in a more substantial way. So, you know, similar to In West Mills with two households having shared issues, you know, and mixing and mingling into each other's lives. And I think it'll be set in the 80s, maybe early 90s. I'm still trying to avoid cell phones. So (laughs) maybe, you know, maybe late, maybe late 80s where people still have to pick up the phone and call each other and walk across the road to see each other and that sort of thing.
3: (laughs) Well, I love this idea, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. What are the gifts of avoiding cell phones in in the story you're
2: painting? Well, I haven't learned how to work with plot when characters are doing things via text or when they can find out something before they even get there because someone can call them while they're driving to a place. You know, it takes away, for me, it takes away that element of surprise of someone driving onto their street and seeing the ambulance and the police and the fire truck versus being called and said said so and so and so just died or so and so's house is on fire you know it takes away that that shocking moment for the reader to see the character drive up and find whatever the calamity is you know
3: I sort of love that 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 it builds in a slower pace Mm -hmm. of, of you know of information reveal it, yeah. Uh, protects you, yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: I, I I'm never... going to
2: have to, yeah, at some point I'm going to have to, as the books progress in time, <laughs> <laughs> eventually I'm going to have to get rid of that fear and let my characters use cell phones.
3: <laughs> I, I don't know, I can see it from a different dimension. Like, it maybe it's your part of your sort of intuitive genius to... Build the right pace of where you are. I mean, it seems to match like an an in West, you know, in West Mm -hmm. kind of uh, the word slowly goes through town and then, da da da. Yeah. 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 (laughs) One more reminder if you like listening to Between the Covers or our other wonderful news, music, and public programming, please consider becoming a member. It's our special all-frills, no-frills membership drive. Please help us reach our goal of $17,000 before March 25th. You can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Do you prefer the form of a novel or do you write short stories too? Or what do you like to do?
2: I think, well... When I first started writing, it was definitely short form. But I find that every short story I've written, which is not very many at all, have made their way into either in West Mills or Decent People. Well, actually, I take that back. Some of them I thought I was gonna use in Decent People and I ended up not using them, so they're still unused. (laughs) But I have ideas for those couple of pieces expanding them into a novel or making them one novel two characters in one novel but i I think i might be a short novel writer you know i think that might be it so because in west mill started off as a 30 like five page story and and i expanded it yeah after lots I was stubborn and but after lots of feedback that said this feels like a novel crammed into 30 something pages I said okay well maybe I'll just go ahead and expand it <laughs> did you yeah. feel
4: did
3: you feel um, an increased freedom once you had that because I, I, I think so many people are so terrified like I can write a short story but a novel is like a giant thing like yeah. you, and other people feel like oh no this is better I can just do what I want
2: Hmm. I did feel freedom once I started to write. I was like, "Oh my goodness! There's so much backstory I can do now that wouldn't have worked for a story, you know? Whole chapters of the past that I can do, yeah, yeah, and scenes, lots of scenes, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah." So I was really glad once I decided to give it a shot. I was really glad that I that I did. I would like to try to write a brand new, fresh short story i'm not promising anyone you know or myself that i'm gonna do it anytime soon (laughs) but um it's a challenge that i would like to sort of overcome now i'm sort of afraid of the short story that i'm you know that i'm gonna not know how to pull back Yeah. yeah
3: yeah yeah So, can I circle back to you were saying I wasn't planning on being a writer. Then I was, it was reading that got me just a little bit of an idea. And then a professor suggested can you, can we go back to your story a little bit about then what sure.
2: Yeah. So, Tony, so, okay, so it was 99 because Toni Morrison's beloved had been adapted um, to film Oprah Winfrey playing the the lead and I went to see that movie and because I had built a rapport with this English 2 professor I told her that I had seen the film over the weekend and she was like oh have you read Morrison's books and I said no not a single one and she said well you have to go she said well since you've seen Beloved go read Beloved and then you'll probably love it and you'll probably start reading all her work and that's exactly what happened not right away but I did go read Beloved right away. And I did find it, it wasn't exactly accessible. What little reading I did, again, I didn't really read for pleasure, but what re- little reading I may have, you know, done just a little bit on the side was not literary fiction. You know, it was, you know, more commercial. It was Elan Harris, which is some people say it's literary queer fiction. I didn't. You know, but so eventually I did go and start reading Toni Morrison's catalog, not not one behind the other, but I, you know. So anyway, that's what got me into reading for for pleasure. I started reading a lot of work written by Black women, not all literary, for lack of a better word, but I just started to read for for pleasure, and um, and then I sort of stopped again. <laughs> you know yeah and i think it was because i had moved to new york and went back to school cuz i dropped out of college and moved to new york and was working um and then i started going back to school i w- got went back to school in 2006 3 years after moving to new york and slowly started reading for pleasure again you know not having ton of time a ton of time to do it but just being back in school I think sort of triggered, you know, me reading for pleasure again. And so, yeah, writing was not on my radar at all because reading was, reading for pleasure wasn't even something I had a ton of time to do. Yeah.
3: So what changed?
2: Well, in addition to my whole, my my father passing and doing that, I think realizing that I or being told because I didn't realize it being told that I had like a knack for it you know my teachers my creative writing teachers and I was a business major I forgot to say I was a business major when I returned to school (laughs) and after my father passed and I decided I wanted to try writing a little bit I took an intro to creative writing class and enjoyed it a lot and um, I took two of them, and then both teachers were like, "You kind of have a natural storytelling sort of a way, you know." And I, you know, and I think you should pursue it if you're interested. Maybe, you know, they were like, "Maybe as a minor, you know." And so I said, "You know what? I'm gonna be a creative writing major and make business my minor." <laughs> so that's, you know, that's what I did. But I think it basically it was encouragement. It was someone saying, no, you you have something. I think we should pursue it. And I did. If those teachers may not have pointed out to me that they recognized something, I may not have continued in creative writing at all. I would probably be working at some bank or something. Well, yeah.
4: well, I
3: love that, of course but I also love about it that you were able to take that in
4: as mm-hmm.
3: that you could take yourself seriously when you were given that, listen, you have a voice. And yeah. you took it seriously and took yourself seriously enough that you followed, followed what felt good about that. I, I love mm-hmm. that story too.
2: <laughs> yeah. It was still kind of strange to me because I, even though I, so I finished the the degree in creative writing. I dropped that business minor altogether. And I still didn't feel a ton of confidence. So I didn't apply to MFAs right away. In fact, I applied for an MA because I was like, Oh, I can do literature and get teaching jobs and that sort of thing, which I, you know, I did. And then after the MA, I said, Okay, I'm going to well, I think it was a teacher once again who said, "I hope you're still writing," you know. And and I said, "You know what? I haven't been, but maybe I'll you know revise some stories I wrote in your class and that sort of thing." And because of the MA, I was in class with a lot of MFA students and and became friends with MFA students and then I think that's where I sort of got the courage to 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 give it a go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once,
3: yeah. once you are in a group of people where it it is possible, and I can do it.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and what is your sort of writing practice like? Like what had what did that become about how you work? How you work?
2: It when I when I got into the MFA program, I went in almost with no work at all, except for no, well, no serious work. I had those little pieces that I had written as an undergraduate. And I did write a draft of that story that later became in West Mills, but it was very, you know, skeleton, skeleton pieces, just so that someone could see what the story was about and that sort of thing. So I felt like I was largely starting from from scratch. And because I was also teaching during my MFA, I had to steal time to write you know, like an hour before going to teach, the hour after teaching and that sort of thing. So I never, I guess that was sort of my routine for a while because, you know, as you know, writing for a purpose, you have workshop coming up in three weeks, (laughs) you know? And so, I, I, you know, I sort of wrote when I knew I had a workshop coming up or I got serious about it when I had a workshop coming up. But after the MFA, it sort of became writing when an idea hit and and really kept nagging me. I'm not one of those types of people who who says every day I must write x amount of words or so spend yeah. one hour. I tried that and it doesn't it doesn't work for me. Yeah. So I don't have like a regular routine. It's about when the when the page calls me. Yeah
3: love that, that you're responsive to it instead of inflicting a structure that you demand that you do. hmm
4: That's great. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you so much.
2: <laughs> thank you. This was fun.
3: <laughs> yeah, I hope we can do it again sometime with yeah.
2: your book. Um,
3: <laughs> and uh, I hope you get even more... Um, Praise and good feedback from this one, the way you did from your first one, it really seemed like the reception was so lovely for your first book. I just, I, I just love that you got that level of keep going. I feel like people really lit up about it, and that must feel wonderful. And I'm, I'm one of them. So
2: well, thank you, you so much. Glad. So thank glad you, you so you. much. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes I still. I was just telling someone a few days ago that it's still all unreal to me considering that I'd never thought, you know, I had reading um, challenges as a, as a kid, you know? Yeah. I had reading challenges as a child. And so the idea of reading was scary. So the idea of writing was terrifying, you know? Um, But so it's, you know anyway thank you and still it's still all very surprising to me (laughs) it really is
3: i hope it is. i'm glad it's the fun kind of surprising like yeah it'll take (laughs) time to have it sink in but it's there and it's real and um you have a lot of fans and for wonderful wonderful reasons so i just treasure that i got to have this lovely talk with you
2: thank you so much Avi.
3: That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to our interview with novelist Deshawn Charles Winslow. One more reminder, if you like listening to Between the Covers, please consider becoming a member. It's our special all thrills, no frills membership drive. You can go to kboo.fm give or text KBOO to 44321. Thank you as always. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, listening to, to KBOO
4: the Portland, listener supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Shiba up next after these headlines.
0: Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM.